This week on Policy, Guns and Money, Dr. Robert Glasser and Dr. Hung Ne Tu discuss the outcomes of Vietnam's 13th Party Congress. It's very complicated because to get to the Politburo, you'll have to serve a number of times in the party and you have to have at least one uh, term in the Central Committee. Daria Mpionbato speaks with Dr. Alexander Phelan about the impacts of COVID-19 on terrorism and organised crime globally. Mexico, Brazil, El Salvador and Colombia are often pointed to as the textbook case studies for this strategic dilemma. And Fergus Ryan and Jocelyn Kang discuss how right-wing extremist sites are using Russia and China to stay online. Even though it had been kicked off the internet, had figured out a way of getting back on the internet and staying on the internet by using services provided by China and Russia. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPI podcast. With me, Olivia Nelson. With February's National Congress held by the Vietnam Communist Party, many thought that the current state of affairs would offer another turning point, similar to those of the Doi Mui reforms. Dr. Hung Le Tu and Dr. Robert Glasser discussed the initial results of the Congress and what the future of politics looks like in Vietnam. Good morning, Hung. Thanks for joining me in this discussion about Vietnam. Uh, Good to talk to you, Robert. Yeah, so today you and I have been discussing earlier in the week uh, the Vietnamese 13th uh, National Party Congress. And it was a very interesting party congress, and you've written a lot about the outcomes. So why don't we take a little time today to talk about that? Yes. What was unusual about this congress? So um, the Vietnamese party congress happens once in a five years. It's a really big event that decides on the leadership for the next five years, of course, and the, the key policy lines and also plans for the future, of both in terms of economic policies as well as political development um, and foreign policy as well and social economic policies as they call it in in the country. So this year was very important because it's in the middle of the pandemic. It's a very critical time for Vietnam who has done you know relatively good in terms of addressing the pandemic. Uh, so it was very interesting to see how um, this response to the pandemic is being reflected in the uh, party congress and policies uh, ahead, including, for example, um, how Vietnam will leverage the early recovery from the pandemic, how Vietnam is going to take advantage of the shifting global supply chain, and also what is Vietnamese position in the great power competition and so on and so forth. So it's a very critical time, but in terms of domestic political um, developments, I think it was also very interesting Congress to observe because let's, let's talk about the domestic political scene first and yes. maybe relate it to the international. What was interesting about it from a domestic political perspective? Yes, so we've reached a point where ma- majority of key representation in the Politburo, which is the most important decision-making um, body in the party, as well as high representation in central committee, that uh, many of them have reached so-called le- uh, age limit, which is like past 65 years. So uh, we expected a lot of you know, generation change, new faces and new blood, so, so to speak, to come into party or come into the decision-making positions and really be more representative of this very young, demographically very young nation. Um, so that was uh, a, a big uh, you know, party congress to watch. 
I argued that, you know, since uh, the Party Congress in 1986, which was uh, introduced the Doi Mo reforms, the opening reforms that really changed the course of Vietnam, I thought this one is one of those important Party Congresses. So further relaxation, opening, focus on technocrats and economic uh, development. But that didn't happen, did it? The age limit wasn't observed. They made two exceptions. Well, yes. So there were many um, that were contending that would have to require e exceptions, um, exemptions from the from the age limit and also term limit. Um, so the result is that uh, the party secretary general, Nguyen Phu Chao, who already the last party congress, the 12th party congress, five years ago, uh, received an exemption from his age limit. He's now 77. And he's now been confirmed to run for the third term as a party secretary general, which is very unusual. Um, the other exemption was uh, the prime minister, Nguyen Sun Phuc, who uh, probably is known to Australian audience because he was uh, the one who came here um, and signed the strategic partnership uh, with uh, back then prime minister uh, Malcolm Turnbull. So why did they make the, the exceptions in this case? Was it that there were no young reformers who were adequate to fill the shoes? Or was this about tighter control by the party? Yeah. What explains that? It's very complicated because to, to get to the bureau, uh, Politburo, you'll have to serve a number of times in the party and you have to have at least one uh, term in the central committee. It's very hard for young politicians and young party members to get into the that high position. So by default, um, it is not really, Politburo is not really a place for younger generation. Um, but also about authority, I, I know that there are num there were a number of uh, sort of younger and more so-called um, seen as technocrats who uh, are, have been quite popular also among people. For example, the Deputy Prime Minister Wu Duk Dam, who has been really at the forefront of the COVID response. He didn't get voted into the Politburo, for example. So it, there is a lot of experience ex uh, expected from the Politburo members. Uh, but the results are quite, uh, to me, uh, signal a little bit um, stagnation rather than reforms. And uh, it is an opportunity miss in a way because Vietnam is a very critical junction, like I mentioned in earlier, that it is really early recovery. It is young and very uh, innovative population demographic right now, and it needs to harness this potential and it needs to jump into really, you know, digitalization of economy, really reinventing itself, especially that um, the party Congress has set up very ambitious goals, for example, to become upper middle income by 2030 or to become a, a, a you know high income country by 2045 that's so very, high, you know, very high so how do young people this dynamic energy that now sounds as though with this continuing aging leadership will they have an opportunity to shine and or will they become frustrated at uh, at this change 
I think um, there is a little bit of frustration, of of course, uh, to the normal um, regular citizens. They don't um, really, you know, there's not that close connection to the party and what's going on within the party because there's no direct representation. There's, they can't vote for their um, for their representative direct, directly anyway. Uh, but there are one or two younger representatives uh, in the Politburo. By my account, the median age is actually um, close to 63 of the 18 members and very few of them will be eligible to um, rerun for the next term. Wow, so that actually raises an interesting question about the next party Congress because it sounds as though unless they make exceptions for everyone, there'll be a radical change of people on the uh, Politburo, I guess, or the organizing committee. Yes, uh, they will make some exceptions. But yes, I agree. This They can't make exception to the majority like it was um, with this one. But I think what happened in this party congress was delaying the change, right. really. Having the same people uh, or, you know, people in power, the party secretary general who is very adamant about you know, preserving the purity of the party and 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 um, kind of theoretical and ideological loyalty, and he is making sure that a lot of his supporters are taking key positions in the next administration. So let's shift now and maybe talk about the international or regional dimensions as well. Mm-hmm. What, at if anything, in these developments at the Party Congress um, reflect? either China, a key partner for Vietnam, or the U.S., a key partner, or COVID response, or, you know, how many of what, how much of what we're seeing now in Vietnam at this current Congress is reflection as well as uh, internal issues, these out- external pressures? Yes. So um, everybody expected that those, the highest performers uh, of the COVID response who showed competency and, you know, very good in directly responding and very nimble in their policies um, at the forefront, um, like Prime Minister Nguyen Xuân Phuc and Deputy uh, Prime Minister Bu Đức Đàm would take, um, you know, a stronger role in the next five years. But doesn't look like so. Uh, Prime Minister Nguyen Xuân Phuc, who is also really responsible for Vietnamese economic reforms and his good performance, uh, he's allegedly being um, elevated to the state president role, but which actually is just more representative role rather than um, really having, you know, a direct influence on the uh, government policies. Um, So that's a bit worrying. So it's strange that you have these players who were in line to be promoted potentially, who performed perfectly on COVID, on economic matters, or really strongly are not, are not rewarded with that change. Yes. Yeah, so um, every, anyone who could, I mean, Viet, I've I argue that Vietnam needs technocrats at the moment to really navigate as many external pressures, including China's, who is only getting more aggressive next door. Um, U.S. policies would be quite challenging too with the Biden administration that is uh, more probably more focused on um, human rights uh, than the previous administration, for example, and really ability to navigate international environment uh, and have the comfort to interact with um, the foreign and especially Western powers uh, like um, Prime Minister Nguyen Xuân Phuc did. 
Secretary General Nguyen Phu Trọng is less uh, outgoing in that way. He's more traditionalist, and uh, I, the uh, Foreign Minister, who is also Deputy Prime Minister Phạm Bình Minh, who had really led Vietnamese very progressive foreign policy, is also supposedly not being extended in his position mm-hmm. and probably taking more of the party bureaucrat role uh, in the next five years. So we're losing a lot of um, this kind of competencies that have been built. So how much of this exception, the extension of these people beyond the age limit, reflects kind of a desire in these uncertain times with the China's uh, cha- changes in China, the U.S. government? Is how much of this reflects a desire to just maintain control and status quo, concern about being able to manage in these maybe more uncertain times ahead? Yes, it does. Uh, it does look like that because although Vietnam is, has one party, uh, but there are two clear power centers, which is one is party. Uh, center and one is government uh, state center. So we clearly see that those uh, competent technocrats from the government power centers, like I mentioned, those in the government are clearly sidelines, sideline, and um, the the pa- party power center is clearly creeping over those key competencies. Hong, thank you very much. Very interesting amazingly interesting and important country for Australia and we don't focus on it nearly enough. So thank you very much for enlightening us in this discussion. Thank you, Robert. It was a pleasure. COVID-19 has had far-reaching impacts, including on terrorist and organized crime groups. Daria Impiombato speaks with Dr. Alexandra Phelan, Deputy Director of Monash Gender, Peace and Security, and lecturer in politics and international relations. They discuss the terror crime nexus in Latin America and how COVID-19 has exacerbated both organized crime and terrorism globally. All right. Thank you, Alex, for joining me today. I would just like to start asking you about what the terror crime nexus scenario looks like in Latin America and what are the hotspots, major areas of interest to look at. So we tend to look at the terror crime nexus generally as the interplay between transnational organized crime and terrorism. Fundamentally, the aims of these two types of organizations tend to be treated quite distinctly. So terrorist groups carry out violent campaigns in pursuit of an overall political goal or objective, and organized crime groups do seek to attempt to maximize illicit profits and in some cases attempt to influence state authorities in order to maintain and conduct business. So the nexus itself is often understood as the use of crime by terrorist organizations as a source of funding, things like the imposition of war taxes, kidnapping in the extortion, engagement and regulation of the drug trade, but it can also be understood as the use of terrorist violence by organised crime groups to intimidate and instill fear in populations and government and for strategic objectives. So as a result, there's a certain fluidity with such groups where organised crime groups can use terrorist tactics for operational purposes and terrorist groups can use crime also for operational purposes. In many ways, this starts to converge when criminal groups begin displaying political motivations and terrorist groups use their political ideology as either a facade or justification for their criminal objectives. Now, keeping this in mind, what we see throughout parts of Latin America is that this 
terror crime nexus really can't entirely be understood in terms of gains from illicit economies, including the group's political justifications of these. In many respects, the terror crime nexus has become closely linked with proto-state governance. Militant groups like guerrillas, cartels and gangs integrate illegal economies into their areas of control and influence and often then redirect proceeds from these back into the communities where they operate. This is designed to not only maintain authority over both territory and lucrative turf, but also to persuade and enhance perceptions of the organisational legitimacy over their opponents. Now, this obviously poses challenges to law enforcement, but in some cases we're really talking about very real criminal governance where political stakeholders may face no choice but having to form formal and informal alliances with various groups. In terms of your question pertaining to hotspots, Mexico, Brazil, El Salvador and Colombia often pointed to as the textbook case studies for this strategic dilemma. It's not to say, though, that other countries in the region don't experience this. In fact, arguably, we see different manifestations of the terror crime nexus in Venezuela, Guatemala and Honduras. But often the conflicts in those four countries have demonstrated a degree of staying power, which has set these cases apart. I've seen that um, in Italy in particular, organised crime groups have been very much uh, helped by the coronavirus pandemic in their pursuit of substituting the state Mm-hmm. Um, particularly in certain areas of uh, the south of the country. So I was wondering whether both organized crime and terrorism uh, terrorist groups had been assisted by the coronavirus pandemic um, in Latin America. They have been. Um, in many ways, COVID has really illustrated, as you've just identified, the degree to which these non-state armed groups, well, throughout the region, in the case of Latin America, actually wield control or influence territories, but it's further demonstrated the complexities of the terror crime nexus when integrated and consolidated into essentially militant governance. So COVID, as it destroyed many industries, um, significantly gutted the price of coca, which presented challenges for both guerrillas and organised crime groups in Latin America, given disruption to logistics and trade routes and also the ability to actually transport drugs outside of the region. But the effects of COVID also presented opportunities for these organisations, with some actually leveraging the crisis to strategically reposition, to expand their presence, and then to enforce arbitrary rule to the detriment of the populations that are living within their spheres of influence. So, for example, in Mexico, Jalisco Cartel New Generation is quite diversified and was able to keep afloat capitalising off other revenue streams. This particular cartel capitalised off the virus by taking turf over weakened competitors and also significantly expanding its already dominant position during the pandemic. In Brazil, the First Capital Command and the Red Command, along with other gangs, exerted power throughout parts of Brazil by imposing social control in response to COVID in certain favelas. They did this by way of imposing curfews, restrictions on movement and the implementation of specific measures to limit the spread of the virus. These control orders were circulated via messaging apps, including WhatsApp, essentially carrying out stake-like restrictions, such as cancelling parties and large gatherings, ordering bars to close, but permitting takeaway quite like they do here and here in Victoria at the moment, and ordering residents to stay at home. 
But in addition to enforcing rules, these gangs also handed out welfare, they handed out hand soap, and they organised the display of COVID messaging by essentially creating signs asking those who entered the favelas to ensure that they washed their hands and wear masks. So these can be seen as active attempts to fill the void of ongoing government neglect towards favela communities. But similarly in Colombia, Colombia's Ombudsman Office warned that backroom ELN and FARC dissidents were taking advantage of the pandemic's lockdown period to strengthen their military advantage and to also impose control orders. This included things like regulating commercial and leisure establishments, blocking land and waterways, controlling medical and food supplies to the point of actually restricting their arrival and departure. At least 10 homicides were allegedly committed in this particular report, or it was outlined in this particular report, I should say, because the victims essentially had violated the measures imposed by these militant groups, which of course raises then huge questions about the arbitrary nature of such attacks. That is fascinating and scary at the same time because mm-hmm. um, we have no idea when the the crisis is going to be over so i'm supposing it's going to be very hard to uh, account for all the consequences of this especially because i'm not sure how the vaccine rollout is going in latin america but probably not great as in any other country really Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. But how about the impacts that this um, exacerbation, I guess, have on other countries and in the international community? So this dilemma itself, I guess, terror crime nexus as a form of governance has significant security implications for the state and also its efforts to counter the expansion of both insurgents and organised crime groups. But we need to also then remember that many of these groups are actually transnational, so there has to be a degree of transnational approach towards countering these organisations. But it's particularly the case in areas where the government has been unable or unwilling to fully re-exert authority and rule of law. So in terms of implications, I mean, we always point to this notion of good governance through an increase in state presence and essentially the effectiveness of state institutions really becoming key in countering the challenges that the terror crime nexus poses. In the case of Colombia and Brazil, um, military campaigns in Colombia and pacification programs in Brazil have demonstrated that government policies aimed at reclaiming territory really must be overlaid onto legitimacy building because otherwise they continue. In many of these contexts, it is the impoverished and isolated communities that continue to bear the brunt of both government and non-state actor violence, essentially as a daily reality. And inevitably, these communities have developed varying degrees of mistrust towards the state, which has been born out of decades of insufficient social welfare and resources, and in some areas, outright neglect. As a result, policies that emphasise meaningful investments, I would argue, in both social and economic opportunity, combined with adequate consolidation of security and stability, really do serve best to confront such militant actors. So in terms of implications for other countries and also even Australia, it's precisely this point to consider when we engage with our partners overseas, as this isn't context-specific to the Latin American context. This notion of the terror crime nexus infiltrating into governance is prevalent in other areas 
in the world, like Southeast Asia and the Middle East, for instance. But we need to think about this when we work with partners in capacity and capability building and then think about how best to redirect this influence away from non-state actors and back towards the state. Yeah, uh, that is a great point to end our conversation on, although I think we could talk about it for hours. Indeed. (laughs) Thank you once again for uh, joining us today, Alex. You're welcome, Daria. Thank you so much for the invitation. Aspie's Jocelyn Kang and Fergus Ryan have been investigating right-wing extremist groups and the online homes they have found in Russia and China. They found that websites such as the Daily Stormer, Parler and 8chan, which were shut down in the West, are using foreign internet infrastructure to get back online. Hi Fergus, you recently wrote an article for Foreign Policy titled Why are Moscow and Beijing happy to host the US far right online? Can you tell us a bit about it? Sure, yeah. This article was about how white supremacist groups mainly are turning to internet service providers in authoritarian states like Russia and China after they've been kicked off the internet. And I looked in particular at a certain website called The Daily Stormer, which is a neo-Nazi publication. And I was surprised to find that this publication even though it had been kicked off the internet, had figured out a way of getting back on the internet and staying on the internet by using services provided by China and Russia. You say that they're being kicked off the internet. How, how exactly were they kicked off the internet? Well, that's a great question because it's not an easy thing to do. There are a number of different services that make up the technical stack that sits underneath websites and keeps them online. Now, you understand this better than me. There are um, a number of different services that are required to keep a website online. One of those services that the Daily Stormer got from China was their domain name service or DNS. We figured that out on the back of some reporting that was done by Ars Technica. And what they found was that a large number of individual IP addresses Uh, were all being served from China for for that website. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. Uh, The domain name systems service is essentially what holds the internet together. It it allows people to type in their human-readable domain like aspie.org.au into their browsers and actually get to the Aspie website. If if that's taken offline, no one's going to be able to know where a website is. So... I can see if you if uh, someone has removed that ability for that website or removed that mapping for the website, then that's how you would take a, a website offline. Yeah, that's right. So the DNS is, you know, you can think of it as one Jenga block in the tower that's keeping a website online. And if you take out one of those blocks, you make the possibility of that website staying online a little, a little more sh- shaky. Um, And so what has happened with websites like the Daily Stormer, but also other websites like 8chan, which is now known as 8kun, is that typically following violent events in the real world that have been inspired by content on these websites, um, the companies that have been providing these services uh, have been essentially forced into a position uh, because of the gravity of the situation to realize that they're no longer really 
neutral actors and that they some moral responsibility lands on their shoulders um, for keeping these toxic websites online. Yeah, they're not they're not just tech companies that that serve uh, technical content uh, technical support for users. I guess it's not just websites we're talking about. The the part the social media um, at Parler had the same thing happen to it where uh, it was removed from the app stores of both Google and, and Apple, and then later had its content. Uh, it was its content was being hosted by um, Amazon uh, cloud services, and they suspended the, uh, Parler's account. I guess it's easy for everyday users of the internet to just know about the the, the front facing interfaces such as mobile phone apps and, and websites or social media platforms. But you're right about this te- technical stack. There's actually a a lot of things that go into keeping the internet um, available for everyone, and that's that includes the you know uh, content providers like Amazon that I mentioned, but also the uh, DNS servers that you've mentioned, and and also the other one is the transit providers, so the people that actually own and, and configure the infrastructure, so that all it, the internet is a, a network of interconnection of networks, so they keep them together as well, but. I guess one one provider that you mentioned in your um, article is is Cloudflare, and they provide a content delivery network, but they also provide protection services for websites, right? Yeah, that's right. And um, Cloudflare is a really interesting example because that company has taken both the Daily Stormer and 8chan off the internet by removing the service that they were provided providing for those websites and when the company made those decisions the ceo matthew prince i believe his name is uh, wrote a couple of blog pieces in both instances and uh, what he did in those blog posts was uh, establish sort of educate the reader to understand what we've been talking about today which is you know, there are a number of companies that make up this technical stack and each of those companies, it could be argued, bears responsibility for moderating content, the content that are on the websites that they're supporting. And the point that the CEO of Cloudflare was making was that there really is no regulatory guidance in the United States or elsewhere really to these companies to say, yes, you by law are required to moderate content if it is, for example, hate speech or if it is inspiring terrorist acts. Uh, And so we're in a position now where, as you said, you know, companies like Facebook, Twitter and YouTube, they're sort of up the top of the stack and we're used to having discussions about how they have responsibility for moderating content but this subterranean section of companies that are keeping websites afloat they really have no direction whatsoever about when it is that they should intervene or not thank you very much Fergus. thank you that's all we have time for this week on policy guns and money I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back with another episode next week.